Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you is another episode of this Ask, uh, the Ask Noah show kicks off this hour. Uh, Kevin starts us off from North Carolina. Hi, Kevin. Welcome to the Ask Noah show. Hey, Noah. You uh, caught me in uh, the middle of Rose Samaritans. I misjudged the time of when the show starts, so... Uh, I'm not from my computer right now, but ah, that's fine. What I'm dealing with, um, by the way, I use Arch. Uh, 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 you people, you Arch people, <laughs> right? So I've got some uh, Arch distros I'm uh, been messing with, trying out, and uh, my main one is uh, Makulu, and I've also been looking at Salient. Okay. Uh, the one problem I have is I use Hulu to do all my streaming uh, to my Roku box with. I want to be able to use a web browser to do my streaming on my computer with. I followed all the instructions about how to do it through Firefox. Nothing works, but I know there's a way to do it. And I don't know if I'm just missing something or what, but no, no matter what I do, it'll pull up the window, it'll give you the option share your location. I click OK. Under any other type of, di- of distro, Fedora, Debian, that goes through works with no problem. Under Arch, no matter what browser I'm using, it says unable to find your location. What am I doing wrong? Well, uh, let's start with this. There is a special Flash plugin that that used to be required. Now, I canceled my Hulu subscription a while back, so I but I believe this is still the case. Um, so. You need okay. to you need to get Adobe Flash, the Adobe Flash plugin for Mozilla. Now on Ubuntu derivatives, you can do that with a PPA, and that's actually maintained, or at least it was, by Martin Wimpress, um, who who maintains the Linux distro Linux uh, Mate, Ubuntu Mate, and so you can add that uh, that HAL plugin, HAL Flash plugin uh, repository, and you can install it. I just checked, and the Arch AUR does have the HAL Flash plugin. Now, the last time it was updated was t- back in 2016, so I'm not, I can't guarantee that it's going to work, but if I woke up in your shoes and wanted to watch Hulu on Netflix and I was having a hard time doing so, I that's that would be where I would start. And then past that, what I would encourage you to do, honestly, is, you know, you, we make reasonable efforts, right? We make reasonable efforts, Kevin, to try to support these companies because they have the content that we want and so on and so forth, but at some point, you know... I have gotten to a point where I'll fight the good battle for as long as I can, and then I'll move on, and I'll just find something else to watch. Yeah, I've noticed YouTube will work with no problem. If I pull up YouTube TV, everything streams great. Right. I don't have to do any extra work, no issues. But Hulu, they seem to do a better job of the on-demand stuff along with the live material. But I can only struggle with this for so long before it's like, okay, if... A doesn't work and B does. I'm moving on to B, and they're getting my time and money, and I'll help support them in anything else they want to do because at least they're trying to support Linux. 
D. Brandon in the chat room says that you that they they're no longer using Flash anymore. It's the Codex. Now, I I, I did a little bit of uh, of uh, you know as fast as I can in a, on a five minute radio call. Um, and there is an article which I'll link in the show notes, Linux and Ubuntu dot com, and the the published date is February seventeenth. And they're also recommending the uh, HAL pl- plugin and the HAL um, HAL Flash plugin. So I, I don't know what to tell you. It may be that it's supposed to work. Uh, without that plugin installed, and it maybe should somehow transcode, and that you're missing some codecs. The recommendation from the chat room is to enable is to enable DRM. So when you open Firefox and you go to that site and try and load that content, there should be a little yellow bar that pops up the top and and says, I "Click on that." Yeah. So that's a- almost certainly your problem. Then in that there's a little yellow bar that pops up, and it should it should there should be a button that says enable DRM and what that's doing is it's Firefox is telling you hey everything else we have is open source and and free code this is one area that you're we're going to have to use some closed code and are you okay with that do you want me to go ahead and run that content in your in your browser right now I do click on that I see that and that pops up and I hit that and so I thought you know that's try I hit that everything this should just go through and it's amazing because I tried out Makuli Linux uh, flash mm-hmm and not only does it work, but it even gives me, it even uh, downloads a desktop link. So whenever I'm, I click on the link, it doesn't matter what browser is my default. Hulu's going to open up every time on your Makula. And I'm either going to switch distros or switch uh, providers. I like being able to say, hey, by the way, I use Arch, but I might just have to start switching that up and say, hey, by the way, I use Debian. Right. Yeah, which sounds equally as cool. I have to be honest with you. I don't know where why people are so hung up on the bragging about. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, whatever distro you use, use the one that works for you. But the good news is that that HAL, that HAL Flash plugin is available in both the AUR and um, in in uh, in Ubuntu. If you're not clicking on that DRM and, and enabling it, make sure to do that as a first step. And that that is certainly true of Netflix. Um, uh, that's how I've got Netflix to work inside of Firefox. So if it is a codec issue, you'll want to do that. Again, open phones, 855-450-NOAA. That's one 855 4506 I want to introduce you to an app called Caden. Caden is a simplistic, easy-to-use Jabber XMPP client. As you might imagine, throughout my week, I've been spending a lot of time analyzing and working on remote solutions for people to deal with web conferencing. And one of the things that keeps coming up, a relatively large set of businesses are still using uh, XMPP as their underlying messaging infrastructure uh, if they're doing internal communications. And what has been lacking for a while is the the evolution of video and trying to incorporate some of those things and also getting a local, easy-to-use client-side messenger. And so Caden is an up-and-coming, simplistic, easy-to-use client that has a modern interface. The backend is entirely written in C++, so this is not some Java or Electron app. Um, they ran into some uh, some difficulties building Caden for Windows and as well as building the Flatpak. So they're working on that, and they believe that Caden uh, 0.5 will be available on Windows and a Flatpak for Linux soon. Um, they also, they're very clear on their website, Caden isn't finished yet. And so if you're looking for a ready-to-go drop-in production-ready product, this probably isn't it. But it is something that's on the roadmap. It seems like they have a very active and passionate team behind this project. So I wanted to give them a shout out because it's rare that people are 
really working on i shouldn't say it's rare but there a lot of times the apps that are making the news lately are the big commercial robust apps that have finally ported their way into linux and not the 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 really passionate community people that are doing really good work on the side so uh, this is this is a map this is an app i would encourage you to show some love for you can find more at caden.im of course we'll have a link in the show notes for you and uh, uh congratulations to them to building an application that we really need right now. Uh, I, the biggest news of the week, of course, comes to us from Red Hat. Now, people are being pushed into technology like never before. And as technology enthusiasts, as technology professionals, we have been here and we've been waiting for this to happen. We've been ready for this to happen. Uh, we were, at least I was, the kid in school wondering why we had to carry textbooks around with 75 pounds of books because I had eight textbooks rather than just handing me a CD-ROM full of PDFs. And it just seemed like it was completely backwards to the technology we had available to us. And what I've seen as we've kind of ventured into a world in which people have to live in their homes and they have to rely on their technology and use technology to make a living, even people that weren't traditionally doing so, that puts a heavy burden on our shoulders as technologists because we have to make sure to get it right. Now, on the good news is on the budget side. People are pitching in right and left. Companies all over the place are giving away their services. They're giving away their services to school district. Uh, I know we at AltaSpeed Technologies have been doing a lot of work in churches the past few weeks and uh, for a discounted or completely free rate to help them get their services online and streaming so people can stay home and safe. And Red Hat's, one of Red Hat's contributions, is they're giving away their training material for a limited time. Now, the vast majority of us that work in IT were in quarantine before there was a mandatory quarantine, right? That's at least the joke. We, they, they, they take us outside and walk us around, and they put us back in the cage, and we go back to work. We're very comfortable indoors in our, at our desks behind, away from people. That's, we're okay with that. Um, now that we have even more time, what are we going to do with it? And, of course, one of the things that you can do is play some of the games that have come out and been released for Steam and have been released on Linux, obviously, um, you know, being able to invest yourself in VR and those kinds of things are, is a great way to pass the time and, and explore something new in technology. But training and knowledge and bettering yourself is, is the thing that you, was one thing that you can do that nobody can ever take away from you. When you learn a skill, when you acquire knowledge, when you learn how to do something, that's something that nobody can ever take away from you. No matter where you are in life, no matter what you're going through, you'll always have those skills. And now is the best time to build those skills because we have the time to do it. Technology companies are willing to, to let you do this for at a fraction of the cost. This is three, $4,000 worth of material that they have available on their website for free. And so I would encourage everybody to make extra time, uh, use that extra time that you have at home to build your next career or build your current career. Maybe you've always thought about getting into IT and you have thought about this as a hobby. Now is the time at night. Take advantage of this courseware that's available to you and you're doing two things. One, you're staying socially responsible because you're not around other people and you're not communicating with other people. You're just it's just you and your laptop. It's the it's the best date you could imagine. And then on top of that, you're gonna acquire a skill set that will teach you to do some cool things, maybe for your family, maybe it will just have be a hobby, or maybe you launch your next career. And so we'll have the link for you in the show notes on where you can download that courseware from Red Hat. Um, but that's pretty cool. And a huge thank you to Red Hat for doing that for the community. I think that's really fantastic. 
Tails 4.5 was released this week. Now, if you're not familiar with Tails, it's an amnesiatic operating system designed to forget everything you do in a web session. Now, it is the kind of distro that you should be using by default if you want to browse something anonymously. Uh, it, has, it offers enhanced privacy because when Tails boots up on that flash drive, uh, it comes preloaded with a, a few utilities, one of which being Tor, that you can browse the internet uh, completely anonymously, or they have a bunch of file utilities, file encryption utilities that you can use to read, modify, re-encrypt, save uh, encrypted files and have no record of that action being performed. There's nothing to erase. And maybe it's not even you're doing anything that you want to hide. Maybe it's just the fact that we know there has been legal precedent set that if you erase your browser history, and this happened back in the um, in the celebrity scandal, the, the, the perpetrators who did it, and I'm not standing up for them, they're bad people, they deserve to go to jail, but they deleted their browser history before they were ever charged with a crime, and yet that was still seen as tampering with evidence. Now, we can debate all day long if that's right or wrong because they did a bad thing, but the bottom line is the legal precedent has been cast. You could be retroactively charged with a crime if you're deleting your browser history and it later comes out that something on there was was tied to a crime. Uh, it's 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 just scary. And so uh, Tails is seeking to restore that privacy and restore the power into the hands of the user that might want to learn about something or might want to explore something without uh, having to worry about who might be paying attention. This is uh, and they have a new version out now. The new version starts on computers with secure boot enabled, which is something that I've run into in the past. If you purchase a modern computer, chances are it comes with secure boot and chances are it comes with secure boot enabled. The only way around that is if you're buying from one of these manufacturers that are um, freedom respecting, Libra respecting, and they're paying attention to turning some of this stuff off for you or flashing open source BIOSes that that wouldn't have that enabled. Um, Now, Macs have an issue with Tails, uh, with the latest version of Tails 4.5, and that's that if you get an error that says that the security settings do not allow this Mac to use an external startup disk, then they have some additional settings that they'd like you to change, and we'll have the link on how to do that in the show notes, podcast.asknoahshow.com. Intel has ported AMD compiler code for a 10% performance boost in Linux gaming. So Jason Ekstrand uh, is a member of Intel's open-source 3D driver team, and he's been seeing some promising results on a handful of games running in Linux after pouring, uh, after porting AMD's compiler code to the Intel graphics hardware. Now, the code is derived from ACO, short for AMD compiler, which is essentially a shader compiler spearheaded originally by Valve. They, it was first announced back in July when Valve had said at the time that it intended to live the best, deliver the best possible code generation for some game shaders and the fastest possible compilation speed. It also intended to replace AMD's old, own LLVM compiler. Now, using the code originally written for the AMD graphics hardware, Xtrand built an, an Intel GPU driver that's improving the performance of some OpenGL and Vulkan games by around 10% in Linux. Um, that's pretty cool. And you have, this is what happens when you have all of the players on the same page. AMD is making the hardware. They just want to get paid for the hardware. Uh, They don't care if other people benefit from that. And the community then makes the, takes that software and finds ways to leverage the hardware and maybe the manufacturer never thought of it. In this case, it's going to benefit um, a, a competitor, I guess, in a way, but 
to me, what that tells me is when I'm shopping for my next graphics card, guess which company I'm going to? Because now the advancement, now the money that I've spent on that AMD graphics card is going to, is going to in some ways, circle back to the rest of the community. And even if somebody who doesn't have an AMD graphics card is going to have an increase in their performance, thanks to the work that AMD is doing and the other people in the community are doing around that AMD investment. And um, so, you know, Intel gets a, a thumbs up, AMD gets a thumbs up. All of the people that work on this get a thumbs up, and this is the thing that I think gets left out of the discussion a lot of times. We all want to celebrate the successes. We all want to rival in the victory of, hey, now Intel has this device that's available to us, and it works a little bit better, and good on AMD for contributing all of this code, and thanks to all the people. Who's paying for this? Because the developers who discover these things, the developers who think, hey, I wonder if I could take this code and use this over here, if I could try this, we need to make sure that we are supporting them and that when game developers come to Linux and say, hey, we can we can do it this way or we can do it that way, that we're opening up our wallets and saying, thank you for taking the time to develop your product on Linux. Thank you for making my experience better on Linux. And finally, in the news this week, Red Hat names Paul uh, Cormier, President and Chief Executive Offer of Red Hat. And I, you know, I'll just be honest with you. I don't know much about him. I asked around a little bit. I didn't, I didn't really get the impression that, um, that there was a, a, a huge opinion one way or the other of him. The quote, uh, when he was, he was asked when he was, uh, when he was named president and CEO was when I joined Red Hat, it would have been impossible to predict how Linux and open source would change our world, but they are truly everywhere. The transformations I see happening in our industry are exciting as they present new challenges and opportunities. The opportunity for Red Hat has never been bigger than it is today, and I'm honored to lead the company and help our customers solve their challenges and keep Red Hat at the forefront of innovation. So I'm, I'll be honest with you. I love Red Hat. I love the product. I love what they're doing by giving this training material away. I think that's absolutely fantastic. Um, I just don't like the corporate stuff. I'm just not into the, the corporate speak, and I get it. you got to take a quote, and you have to publish, and then this is the way it's done in that world. Um, but... You know, it just it's hard for me to get excited about it. So we'll mention it. So they've named their CEO and president and we'll watch. We'll see what happens. We'll see how uh, Jim Whitehurst does in his new position. We'll see how Red Hat evolves as a company from a community perspective. And of course, one way or the other, we'll continue to focus on the things that matter, the code contributions, the contributions back to the community and uh, and the value that they bring to their community, which they're certainly demonstrating this week um, with their free courseware available now i have gotten i don't know how many requests questions so on so forth about zoom and the buzz surrounding zoom i've largely stayed away from because a lot of it is speculation especially when it comes to security stuff everybody has an angle and everybody freaks out about the littlest things and then we uh, over time as things kind of balance out, then we kind of see what's left. And then if there's something really serious, we address it. And it's it's just been kind of all over the place. But I wanted to present, if nothing else, take some time and talk about what are some useful open source alternatives that you can use to Zoom if you are stranded like many other businesses are and need to be able to implement this, these, these kinds of solutions. So the quick and dirty on Zoom is this. Zoom boiled down to really two issues. The first is Zoom security. Um, meetings are, they, they claim that meetings are end-to-end encrypted using algorithms that have been, have serious and well-known weaknesses. 
And this is according to the University of Toronto. Some researchers there said that the keys are being issued, are being done so on servers based in China, even when the conference participants aren't in China. Maybe they're all in the United States. For whatever reason, it's still using these servers in China to generate those keys. The researchers also found that Zoom protects video content using a homegrown encryption scheme, and there's a vulnerability in Zoom's waiting room feature. They claimed that they were using end-to-end encryption, and that wasn't entirely accurate. They went back and this is Zoom, you know, apologized and then explained how their system actually works. Uh, there was a user that filed a class action lawsuit because they claimed that Zoom was passing information to company like Facebook without proper notification. And that was piggybacked onto an issue in which a Zoom user found out that when you sign in using the Facebook login function, it was passing that information to Facebook, obviously. Uh, Zoom later removed that code from their iOS app to stop it from sending d- data to Facebook. And then they issued apologies. I, you know... When I when I try and break these things down and I try to look at these from a large perspective, Zoom is doing the best they can. They were a platform that was at the right time, at the right place, and they the world just blew up on them. They had you know tens of millions of users, and they go to they have millions of users, then they go to tens of millions of users practically overnight. And for any company of any size. They are going to make mistakes, and how I prefer to judge companies is how they re- how they respond to those mistakes. Do they try to a run away from them and hide? Do they b lie, which is the worst case, and certainly felt like the situ- certainly felt like the case when Dropbox uh, started augmenting their website to hide the fact that they had a single private key that was encrypting users' data. Um, I look at the way that Zoom responds to this, and every time a user or a lawsuit or a claim comes up, Zoom looks into it, and then they respond appropriately. Now, we're harsher on them because they're not open source. We're harsher on them because we can't see the code and audit it for ourselves, and we're installing these programs, and it's asking for root privileges as it's installing these programs, and we have no way if to know for sure the average user doesn't if it's starting a service and running in the background or if it's something that's completely shutting down we have no way of knowing if zoom because they contain the feature to grab a user screen and share it out how is that actually implemented on uh, on the other hand and is there any way of, of an attacker being able to activate that functionality ro- you know remotely we can't verify those things and so every little security thing that comes out we jump on them for and i just I would just caution everybody to take a deep breath and be, one, very thankful that Zoom continues to provide the support that they do for Linux and that that client is available on Linux and that people at my kid's school can use this on their Chromebooks because that app is available there. It's available on an iPad, an Android, you know, the Linux desktop. I We use it every single week to record Destination Linux. So I would just encourage people to try and take a deep breath and and treat this company and give them a little bit of slack. That said, there are some issues with Zoom that apart from, the, from even their best of intentions, the way that their that in ecosystem works when you have one central product from one central company and everybody has to go through that central company, it creates and builds a gigantic target. And so those who aren't taking extra security measures and maybe don't even know how to take extra security measures fall through the cracks. And that is certainly the case of what's happening with Zoom bombing. If you haven't heard of Zoom bombing, it is when somebody without an invitation joins a Zoom conference and then either collects information from that Zoom conference or uh, more often than not 
create some sort of distraction in that Zoom conference. And some examples of what I'm talking about, there was a graduate defending his thesis, and uh, he had a Zoom bomber that came in and drew male genitalia all over the screen while his closest family and friends and family watched. Uh, There was an Alcohol Anonymous group in meeting in New York that was interrupted when a Zoom bomber came in. Uh, Sunday school in Texas and online classes at the University of South Carolina, or uh, South California, excuse me, and a meeting in Kalamazoo, Michigan. All were interrupted when somebody just, uninvited, showed up. And Zoom has worked, again, to address and publish a guide detailing how users can protect themselves and manage their meetings. It changed their security uh, settings for accounts and and the, and the, the type of security that's used for schools and universities making their meetings more private by default. So, they're, again, they're responding to these things. But I look at this and I say, how can we fix this with the open source tools and how would that better a, a, a potential customer or a potential customer of this kind of software's life? And what I'm finding is we've got to get a couple of stupid things out of the way. First of all, if you have government secrets, if you have large corporate secrets, you should be using a different service, period. I, I the, One of the articles that I used, and we have it linked in the show notes if you want to read it in, in its entirety, but I, I take issue anytime – a article says things like we've determined that that big secrets cannot be cannot be shared over Zoom. Well, of course, that's not really what they're aiming for. They're trying to make an easy to use web conferencing app that works for most companies. Most companies don't have either nation state attacks or um you know or home state attacks. It's individual people or the or the the occasional prankster that's trying to target their business, right? Now, if you work for, you know, some massive company that has industrial plans that are very trade secret, well, yeah, of course, you should be, you shouldn't be using Zoom. In fact, I question why anybody operating under that kind of security, either because you work for another nation or because you own a large corporation and have a lot to lose, why you would be trusting a third party with your communications to begin with. Um, so consider the sheer scale and size to operate for Zoom and consider what they're trying to accomplish and then apply the appropriate threat model and the appropriate security model. I think the people that are complaining about some of those security uh, uh, security issues are are really looking at the wrong product to begin with. And I think Zoom is doing a very good a job to ad- a very good job addressing the remaining secure the remaining security concerns for the people that it's intended for. Now, some of the alternatives that you might look into uh, first on the list is Nextcloud Talk. Now, if you've not used Nextcloud Talk, and I haven't, um, it is a fully on-premise, self-hosted, encrypted, peer-to-peer uh, conferencing solution. And what I wasn't previously aware of, and as I was exploring it, I found out it's a real competitor to Slack and Mattermost. What they've done is effectively created an office in a box, and what you have to understand is the way that most of these companies are including web conferencing every almost every one of them certainly all of the the new developments that are popping up are being created with webrtc and there's a reason for that webrtc really is the future of video and audio conferencing on any platform inside of the browser and the reason that's advantageous is because every platform only has to worry about dealing with webrtc calls and because it's a standard solution with standard codecs um, implemented in a, in a fairly standard way, not that you can't, not that you can't change any of those things, um, but because there's an agreed upon standard, every browser, 
uh, works when you're using WebRTC. And it lowers the burden on the developers because they no longer have to pay attention of how am I going to call the webcam? How am I going to call the microphone? They just have a WebRTC drop-in and they, they build their solution around it. And so this has become very, very powerful. And this is why you're seeing voice and video chat pop up everywhere. Um, Nextcloud Talk has mobile apps for Android and iOS. They offer screen sharing, integration with Nextcloud files and groupware. They support mobile calls, chat, push notifications. They have integration with other tools. They offer webinar and public meetings. That's something that we are looking at at UltaSpeed when we have to have multiple people uh, from another company join us. Um, that becomes a problem. And then they also offer a SIP gate. And so what this allows you to do is tie Nextcloud Talk into your SIP server. And Nextcloud Talk becomes an extension so that when you're hosting Nextcloud conferences, if you have people that are not computer savvy or maybe they don't have any other multimedia to add, they just need to be able to participate in the audio discussion. Well, they can just call in with a phone number. So Nextcloud, again, it's, it's an office in a can. And it's an office and a can that anybody can un, uh, can open up, and now it's running on your infrastructure. And now you have your data on your hard drives using your encryption. And if you're an organization that has super secrets, don't let them go over the Internet if they don't have to. And this is how you do that. When those secrets do have to go into, over the Internet, you should be in control of them. You should be in control of them by using your own VPN, and you should keep your tech under your control. Nextcloud Talk protects your communication better than other team collaboration platforms like Microsoft Teams or Slack by making sure that your data stays on your servers. And of course, how much of your server you want to put on yours is, is up to you. I would say that if even if all you did was place your Nextcloud instance on a DigitalOcean droplet, you've drastically reduced your threat vector because now it's not the people targeting Zoom, it's the people targeting your next cloud instance. And at least you're starting from that premise. And if you as a system administrator have some reasonable skills to keep the machine up to date and apply patches and, and make sane choices on, on settings, you should be fine. Um, as other people start to use it, you can, you know, that will obviously depend on, on what security practices are, are forced upon those users and how well they cooperate with that. The second one we'll talk about is Jitsi Meet. And Jitsi Meet offers, again, end-to-end encryption, 100% open source. It, uh, it's a video conferencing solution. It's completely free to use, and there's no account needed to create an account on meet.jit.si. And this is one of the solutions that we used back in the last days to record the Linux Action Show. And the reason that we did that at the time was because it was one of the few options that worked on Linux and still gave us a tremendous amount of control over the video devices. And that's true today. The ability to control the frame rate, the ability to control the resolution, the ability to set all of these things inside of a software and then choose the video encoding algorithm, the audio encoding algorithm, um, the, uh, the, the compression rate, all of those knobs and levers make for a very professional product. One of the issues that I have with Jitsi, though, is I, the overall experience leaves you with something to be desired. And that's not a knock on Jitsi, and it's not a knock on, on their development team, because to a certain degree, it, they're, they, the only reason that we, people even have an opinion of how Jitsi Meet works is because they offer a free demo. 
And I strongly suspect that the experience is tied to the fact that there just aren't a lot of resources that they can afford to put into that public demo. And so if you were to spin Jitsi Meet up on your own server and you manage that, it's going to deliver a, a far superior experience. And we hear that from people. But at the same time, when we were doing a show and we had a certain amount of time to just get the thing to work, if you're in charge of an IT department and your boss comes to you and says, hey, John, what are we doing right now? What's the solution? Are you going to sign up for a Jitsi account or are you going to sign up for a Zoom account? And I, I guess I, that's a hard question for me to answer because I've been in that chair where you have to have the solution right now and the open source one just isn't maybe quite ready. And I guess that's kind of how Jitsi felt to me. But I do, prevent, I do prefer things to be as modular as possible. And so when I start looking and comparing things like Jitsi Meet to NextCloud Talk, one of the things that does cross my mind and, uh, and something that I do consider is, you know, when you get your team chat and your file sharing and your video conferencing and your call-in conferencing software and all of those things are all on one platform and you go to change that one platform, you end up breaking the workflow of 6, 7, 10, 15, 20 people. If you can mod if you can get those things into individual modules and run them independently of each other, well now you have the opportunity to swap out the video and audio conferencing portion without having to worry about disrupting everybody's file flow. And so maybe I like C-File to do the file syncing because I think C-File does a better job of file syncing than Nextcloud does. But maybe I prefer Jitsi or something else we're going to talk about in a second to do the video because it will do a better job of doing video. And of course, that's something else is my favorite video chat that I've used to date. And that is WebRTC uh, built into Matrix. Now, Matrix is really designed to be a communications platform of the of the next century you always have that one guy that insists on being an irc right the whole company moves from one thing to another and then you got john in the corner that insists on being an irc and he activated the irc you know connection bot so that he can be there and then the you know the, the company moves to something else and every time we get something with more features and more advanced john finds a way to adapt his IRC client so that he can communicate with these newer, newer platforms. But the problem is IRC isn't getting any newer and they're not incorporating any new features. And so when you start getting to things like emoticons and some of those can be easily uh, interpreted others, you, unless you have like a, a, a legend handy, they're just, they're, too, they're a bunch of weird characters all right in a row. And that's, you know, no automatic previewing of, of, uh, of links and integration with other, other, uh, files and, and so on and so forth. There are just limitations by IRC and certain clients are trying to overcome those. Um, but it's, it's a dying platform. And one of the things that people like about the IRC is the simplicity and the ability to spin up your own server and that there's this universal standard for the ability to connect. And so I can have one client running and exist in 15, 20 different communities. And this is one of the things that Matrix seeks to solve. And so the presentation, very much like IRC. Um, the functionality, very much like a 21st century communications platform. And we, back when we were, I was hanging around the Mumble server a lot, we would use Mumble for the voice, and then we would turn our webcams just for the fun of it. And the way that we would accomplish that is we would use a, uh, a Matrix WebRTC plugin. And so we'd have a matrix server with WebRTC running, and it was it was very very smooth. And just like Zoom, just like uh, the, the the these other major platforms that capitalize on the fact that this is easy for end users to do, WebRTC inside of Matrix is you literally send them a link and then they can join. 
Now, of course, because it's self-hosted, um, you can choose how you want to open that up and to whom. You could choose to run that on your own internal server and have it behind a firewall and have people VPN in, and then they would be able to join the virtual conference, the virtual office. Um, or you can open it up to the world, put it on, on a digital ocean droplet or host it inside of a data center and, uh, you know, really take advantage of the big pipes that those, that the data centers have. And I think it was back in 2016 or 2018, excuse me, they did a 3D video calling, uh, video calling at Fosdom. And so they were showing how you can use WebRTC and Matrix to impose all sorts of cool 3D effects. Uh, so I, this by far is, as I've said, my favorite video chat client that I've used this far for a couple of reasons. One, I really like the fact that all it requires is a modern web browser to use, and I can just send the link to whoever it is that's participating. The second thing is I like that it's open source top to bottom. Third thing I like about it is because it's using open standards and the open WebRTC engine that's built into uh, and it's just a drop-in solution, it means that I'm not tied to one entire platform. I'm using WebRTC for the video, and they, that team, those people can continue to iterate and make the changes that they need to make to give people the best possible experience on video um, for video conferencing. The downside is, or uh, excuse me, the other side of that is that they that they if if you have to scale to thousands and thousands of users you will want to be able to host it in a place that will be able to accommodate that and so this is these are some of the things that we are looking into and looking at offering to some of these linux conferences that are not going to be able to have their conferences here 1-855-450-NOAA that's 855-450-6624 the email live at asknoahshow.com steve calls from canada hey steve welcome to the ask noah show Hey, Noah, thanks for calling me. That's yeah. my call. <laughs> um, so I had a question about building my own microarray. Let me frame this a little bit. I was kind of poking around for um, devices that, like how the Echo devices or those sort of things are able to do the noise canceling. And I understand that they've got like a, an SMB that has a bunch of mics in an array on them. And so I, I thought, I wonder if I could pack something together myself with like a laptop and a bunch of microphones just because we've got a lot of spare time. Uh, I couldn't seem to phrase my question properly for any of the search engines. So I thought I'd give the person who, who deals with sound day in and day out a call and see if you know how you could plug multiple mics into a laptop and, and place them around the room so that it would detect sound from anywhere. Well, I, so I've not done that exact project, but I'll tell you what, I'll tell you how I would go about solving it. I I worked on a project um, for a ham radio repeater system, and essentially the way that the the way that the project worked was this: you we wanted to have a single repeater that was up on a very high uh, platform with a very powerful amplifier, and we wanted to be able to send it out to so we could cover the whole area. The problem was we it was so high up and it was so powerful it could talk to all of the individual people, but their little tiny five watt handhelds would not have enough power to talk back up to that that main central repeater. And so the idea was to put listening stations all the way around um, this area and the listening stations would, would listen for on the input frequency of the repeater. And then they would through a network connection, make a vote and there would be a voting system and it would look at what the no signal to noise ratio was on each one of those individual uh, on each one of those individual receive sites and the voting system would then make a determination on what the strongest signal was and then it would elect that 
uh, listening station to, to to send into the repeater. So if I was to apply a, a similar principle, if you wanted to build a microarray, what what I would do is you would, if you were going to have separate microphones, you would do something of uh, I would imagine of a voting system. If you were going to build it all, like if you're thinking like the Apple HomePod, where it's all they're all in one space, but they just listen remarkably well. I would imagine the way you'd go about doing that is using individual unidirectional mics. And so you would look for a pickup pattern that has a very tight cardioid pattern um, that only picks up from one direction. And I, I can't tell you what the science is, but I know somebody that might be able to come on and explain what the science is. You would point then those six, seven, eight, however many microphones there are in a specific way that would work with capturing sound as it resonates around the room. Cause that's, you know, that's how sound is eventually going to get to a, to, to a central place. It's going to bounce around. Now we've had Bob Carver on the show before. Um, he is the uh, former owner of Sunfire audio that, and he's designed some of the world's po- most powerful and best sounding amplifiers. If anybody would know how to build a mic array uh, that could do this, it would be him. And I would certainly be willing to ask if he'd come on the program and talk about it. So I guess part of what I was looking for is is kind of um, not quite to the part where I'm I'm going to manufacture a, a speakerphone, but like I've got a bunch of mics kicking around. I've got an old laptop, and I was just trying to think of like I know how to use pulse to send out the same sound to all of the rooms at once. And mm-hmm. so I wondered if there was a sim- a similar thing where you can pull in the mic like from multiple mics plugged into the same computer um, and process that without using something like OBS where you know, um, specifically, it's like I want to have some sort of um, voice recognition so that I can do some speech processing or whatever. Well, so, I mean, here's the thing. Yes, Pulse does support um, you, Pulse. You can send Pulse or actually, I guess also I've done it with also you can you can assign an IP address <clears throat> and encode that, though. You can encode also over an RTP stream. Uh, so you could have a uh, like a single server. That's running your home automation software, microphone processing software, whatever. And it has a a bunch of inputs that are all coming in from around the house. That is something that you could do. The issue, and this is where I get back to some sort of a voting system, you would you would pick up you would in addition to picking up the voices from around the house, you would also start to pick up all of the noise from around the house. And I, I I'm not sure how in software anyway how you would process that unless you went to evaluating where the most prominent signal to noise ratio was and then listen to only that microphone for the period of time that you're trying to evaluate. Mm. Um, what I, could you do me a favor? Like I need to educate myself more and I don't even, I don't even know what to look for to dig up, like to even start understanding what I'm trying to do. It sounds like you've got somewhat of a grasp on that. Could you put some stuff in the show notes of, of places to start reading? Sure. Uh, the, to the best of my ability, I, I would, I, again, the way I would go about that, Steve, is I, I would ask somebody who uh, who has a lot of experience in, in that specific area. And like I say, that to me, that, that would be Bob Carver. So I will send him a message and say, hey, do you have anything on, on, on reading this? And I, of course, I can send you some some basic information on, on microphones and capture patterns and, and those kinds of things, um, if that would help you. Yeah, like I said, I don't even know what to start asking to, like, I'm starting at the ground and looking up and going, I don't even know what to, what to search for. Well, let's learn together. It's I like I have no education. Yeah. I, I'll send a message to Bob and I'll see if he, if, if he has any easy answers um, or, and if he has some time, I'll invite him on and say, Hey, could you, could you explain this? And, and maybe that will be something that would just be a project that, that we can kind of pick up. Um, 
I, w- I would like to learn more about it as well. one 450 noah That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. David writes in and says, just wanted to say thanks for mentioning Mini Diary on the episode Troubleshooting Like a Boss. I had just been making a weekly text file to jot notes down at work and never realized how much more convenient a diary-style app could improve my workflow. Thank you. Uh, I agree, David, and the other part of it is it's also nice to have that information encrypted. That allows you to dump passwords and other things that might be too sensitive to just store in a plain text document, but I would have no problem doing that in an encrypted application. And so it turns out Mini Diary was a popular thing to cover, both in terms of people said, hey, I really enjoy that app, and people that said, uh, like Lester, you mentioned Mini Diary. I have been using Red Notebook for years, and I absolutely love it. And I have used Red Notebook in the past. I guess I had never seen it as a, um, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a way to encrypt information, but I've certainly used it for taking notes. Actually did my Red Hat course that way and very much enjoyed it. Then Alexi wrote in and said, following your note-taking applications part in Ask Noah episode 174, I would like to know if you would like to try TiddlyWiki. Uh, TiddlyWiki is a rich interactive tool for manipulating complex data with structures that don't easily fit into conventional tools like spreadsheets or word processors. TiddlyWiki is designed to fit around your brain, helping you deal with things that won't fit. The fundamental idea is that the information is more useful and reusable if we cut it up into the smallest semantically meaningful chunks, tiddlers, and give them titles so that they can be structured with links, tags, lists, and macros. Tiddlers use a wiki text notation that concisely represents a wide range of text formatting and hypertext features. TiddlyWiki also aims to provide a fluid interface for working with tiddlers, allowing them to be aggregated and composed into larger narratives. People love using TiddlyWiki because it can be used without any complicated server infrastructure and because it's open source. This is a really, really cool project that, for whatever reason, has flown under my radar. And one of the things that I have done, I don't talk about it, but when we set up Linux Delta, I set up a very similar uh, site, a duplicate of it, at my house um, for, for collecting personal information. And part of the reason was I spend so much time on the Internet and I stumble into solutions and how-to guides and, and all sorts of useful information on the Internet. And I never have a single place to store all of that information, so I find myself searching for it again and again. And what I've gotten into the habit of doing, at least for documentation purposes, for working at AltaSpeed, when we solve a problem, I document it in our knowledge base. Now we've started to document those things in Linux Delta. But for all of the other life stuff, the things that don't fit into uh, how-tos and and technology troubleshooting, where do you put that information? And as a personal kind of a wiki or as a company collaboration tool, TiddlyWiki sounds like it would be amazing. I also like the fact that it sounds like it doesn't have to have a separate server component. It sounds like it's light, it's lightweight enough that you're able to run that on your local machine. And the ability to take that with me so I have access to it everywhere, even when I don't have Internet, um, would, be, would be awesome. So I would very much like to, to give that a shot. And a huge thanks uh, for sending that into the program. Steven writes in and says, Hi again, I heard on the podcast la- last night that you might try OpenSUSE. For the most part, it seems to be like the OpenSUSE community has created a well-rounded product. I've heard horror stories of setting up Linux, but was pleasantly surprised at how well everything eventually went when I tried OpenSUSE. My big struggle was with Leap 42.3 and NVIDIA cards. The first few installs, I followed tutorials on 
compiling NVIDIA, which went poorly as I was new to Linux. As I did set up the rest of the options for onboard versus GPU in laptops, then I stumbled onto this link that with this easy specified repositories, the drivers were already there, and I had to match the card, the G03 4 or 5 driver from the packages listed in Yast. I'm not sure why this wasn't promoted in the initial NVIDIA tutorials, but here it is. And then he links to OpenSUSE.org where they have a link to this tutorial. And he says once he added these tutorials and, and, and ran, then OpenSUSE picked up on exactly what his graphics card was and everything was working great. Then he wrote back in a couple days later and said, hey, just an update on the kernel in case you had similar issues with the install of OpenSUSE. A new driver for the NVIDIA card was available today and was talked about the device not being available to the kernel during some driver conflicts and getting it fixed. And then he sent in a link and says, after installing that, the NVIDIA update, then letting the kernel 4.12.14 update, it's all working again. Not sure if that was a fluke or just something that NVIDIA needed to accommodate. Cheers, Stephen. So first off, thanks, Stephen, for writing into the program. I appreciate that. I have been using OpenSUSE for the past week on a spare laptop uh it's a hp this is an hp elite book and so i'm trying it just to see uh, you know how it works the reason is because on linuxdelta.com it is the most upvoted distro for desktop use and my my real appeal to kubuntu is not necessarily the ubuntu base underneath it's really with the kde desktop that's where i find the vast majority of the tools that i'm using and, and tools that i want available to me so i'm absolutely willing to give OpenSUSE a shot and see what 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 the what the fuss is about so to speak and see why everybody's so excited about it so far the experience has been really great and it i will say i know it sounds cliche and i know everybody that reviews OpenSUSE says this but the the, the KDE experience is fantastic, and some of the defaults that they have chosen as opposed to what I see on Kubuntu, um, it, it's just nice to sit down to a, to, a, to a desktop environment that is set up the way I would set it up. Um, let's see, who do we have here? Thomas writes in and says, Hi, Noah, long-time listener of the show. Loving it. Keep up the great work. I have a question about Linux on tablets. I recently acquired one 10-inch Lenovo ThinkPad tablet. Uh, Intel Atom, 1.6 gigahertz, 4 gigs of RAM, 64 gigs of eMMC, and Windows 10 Pro, and I want to put a Linux distro on it. Do you have any suggestions? Thanks. Well, my first suggestion would honestly be Kubuntu, and I say that because as a, I have a good friend of mine that has a, uh, a, a, a ThinkPad X1 tablet, and he is using, um, he uses Gentoo, but he has the KDE desktop. And the functionality that Plasma has for delivering an experience on touchscreens is actually pretty fantastic. Um, and I actually have a machine that sits by my bedside each night. Now, it's not a touchscreen per se, but I primarily operate it using just the mouse. And so I, I have to use the on-screen keyboard, and I, I utilize a lot of the accessibility features that would only be avail- that you would typically see being used on a touchscreen. And I found that experience to be really fantastic. The other thing is... When you start looking at desktop environments, I start to look at the system requirements and I say to myself, four gigs of RAM and 64 gig hard drive, I'm probably looking for something on the lighter weight. But the truth is, having tried KDE on different different hardware, everything from my X1 Carbon down to this tiny little piece of junk uh, HP like stream thing that I have that basically is like a Chromebook that didn't come with Chrome, inst- uh, Chrome OS installed, it actually runs very usably and 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 you get a lot more tra- a lot more distance and mileage out of that than you would think 
Um, and so I would start with that. The other, the other thing I would look at, and I guess it would be a desktop environment specifically, is GNOME. It wouldn't really matter, I guess, if you put that on top of Ubuntu or you put that on something like Arch. Uh, but the GNOME interface also works very, very well with a touchscreen and the way that they have their menu system structured and their, their cascading feature. All of those things uh, make for a very usable tablet environment. Uh, but my end of the day, my overall, uh, I don't know, disclaimer, I guess, applies here. I don't believe that that tablet operating systems make for good desktop experiences. And so I think when you're sitting down to use a desktop operating system and want to accomplish tasks designed for a desktop operating system, that when you put that onto a tablet, it provides a less than stellar performance. And I think that the opposite is true. When you try to use a tablet style operating system where you try to incorporate things that work well in a tablet style operating system into a modern desktop operating system, the experience is equally poor when you're going to use it on a desktop. I have my keyboard, I have my mouse. That is a lot more input and a lot, it's a lot more granular and it's a lot faster than trying to do things with my hands most of the time. Um, and so I just, I don't intermix the two very often. Um, but if you're looking for a, a tablet operating system, that would be my that'd be my advice. That's the direction I would go with um, with that. Th- there was a gentleman on Reddit, and I, I don't usually do stuff like this, but there was a guy on Reddit that caught my attention, and he said that he'd been using Linux for almost three years, and even though he had tried a few distros, um, he 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 still struggles, and that he, there are a lot of things about the OS that he doesn't really understand, and he really wants to understand the underlying operating system. He's not a computer science major, um, but he he doesn't like the idea of just being led by a leash. He really wants to understand everything that he's executing. He wants to be, you know, aware and 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 make choices for himself. And what my answer to him would be, if that's you and you're saying to yourself, I don't know how to learn more about Linux. I don't know how to get more involved. I know I want to learn what these things do and I don't know how to start. My suggestion is pick a distro like Arch, like Manjaro, like uh, even even Gentoo, and walk yourself through the process of installing Arch from scratch. Because understanding what packages deliver what parts of the operating system and what packages are responsible for what uh, experiences you have on the operating system, those are good lessons to learn and those are good things to understand. And that ultimately will drive you to uh, and give you a solid base for learning more about the operating system. Jason, who we had on last week, one of my one of the, the people I respect the most when it, when it comes to asking questions about learning about the underpinnings, always says start with what you know. Start with what you know and then venture on to what you don't know and 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 learn and educate yourself. A couple of administration things to get to self is officially canceled. Um we are uh, we are working with the team to ask if there's anything that we can do to help uh, still bring somewhat of an experience, even if it's a virtual one, to people. So continue to stay tuned as as those discussions continue. Uh, obviously, we will continue to uh, keep you up to date as best we can on conferences when they're closing. Um, Red Hat has gone virtual for their um, for their conference this year. Um, Linux Fest Northwest is having some very 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 limited uh, participation. Um, but uh, is is trying to provide a way to to promote questions, answers, and those kinds of things. And so, um, stay up to date, stay connected to the community, follow these organizations on Twitter, follow us on Twitter. We'll try and keep you up to date and and, and keep keep everything rolling that way. Uh, we have a new tutorial up on 
wiki.linuxdelta.com. If you haven't been there, I invite you to check that out. What I've told my team at AltaSpeed to do is as we come across problems in the field, um, continue to publish those things to the wiki so that the community can be involved and take advantage of those things. And of course, we would invite you. We've had a couple of people write into the program and say, hey, I actually have something that I've written up previously. Would it be okay if and could you help me port that over to uh, wiki.linuxdelta.com? And of course, our answer is absolutely. We'd be happy to help you do that. And so we get somebody from our team involved to um, start formatting that information, getting it published there. If you want all of the articles and the notes and all of the things that we use to prepare the show, you, we provide those to you at podcast.asknoahshow.com. You can go over to that site. It'll have all of the articles that we referenced, and you can read them in their entirety. Uh, we condense a lot of that down. There's a lot of really good information there. The show continues next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. A huge thanks to JT, our producer, Sarah, our call screener. Have a good week. We'll see you next Tuesday at 6 p.m. <laughs>